Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're not going to have trade-offs. We're not going to say to China, we'll go easy on human rights if you agree to you know, stick to the terms of our phase one trade negotiations. We're just not going to do that. We really can't expect to have substantial improvements in our relationship with China while it's holding hostage the economies of our partner nations. There's a popular narrative out there that Australia relies on the United States for its security, but relies on China for its prosperity. And I think that's a narrative that is attractive, but kind of simplistic, and it's fundamentally wrong. We actually are the most consequential economic partner that Australia has, and we view economic security and more traditionally defined national security as parts of the same kind of comprehensive whole, and that's what makes up the alliance going forward. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by the National Security College at the Australian National University. It is produced by yours truly and with the support of our friends at policyforum.net. And those comments you just heard were from Mike Goldman, the United States Chargé d'Affaires to Australia. And in this episode of Security Summit with Rory Medcalf, we talked to Mike about Australia's bilateral relationship with America and regional security under the Biden administration. Mike Goldman is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, having joined State Department in the year 2000. He recently served in Washington as Deputy and Acting Director for China and Mongolia in the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs, and some of his previous assignments have seen him serve in Kathmandu, Hanoi, Tashkent and Taipei. Prior to joining the Foreign Service, Mike was an adjunct professor of political science at San Francisco State University, and my favourite part of his bio is that he once worked on an oyster farm in Washington State. On Tuesday the 23rd of April, Rory Medcalf recorded a discussion with Mike. Let's listen to that right now. G'day, Mike Goldman, and welcome to the National Security Podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you on this program. There's a lot of things we want to talk about today, ranging over national security, the Indo-Pacific, US-China, the vision that the Biden administration has. But I thought I might just start, uh, obviously, by welcoming you to the program and also noting that as as charge d'affaires, uh, you're, you're essentially rep, you know, the representative of the United States in Australia at the moment. We're, we're used to having very good charges <laughs> in charge of the US mission. But it'd be interesting to know, I guess, how you see the role for yourself and maybe when we can expect a uh, a US ambassador uh, in town. Well, thanks, Roy. That's very kind of you. Um, It's an absolute privilege to be Chargé d'Affaires of the US Embassy here. It's... um 
a position of great responsibility, but it's also just a pleasure um, to work with Australian friends and and colleagues to um, speak with people in the, in the media, speak with people in civil society, meet the journos, meet the the political people, um, and meet yourself. Um, so it's it's a real pleasure. You you know our system as well as I do. Um, we. We'll get in civil rights law. There's a phrase called um, "all deliberate speed." We'll get an ambassador in all deliberate speed. This administration is a group of people that takes governance very seriously. Um, they're going to take their selection of people for their ambassadorial postings very seriously, and and we'll get someone very good. Um, the party that controls the White House also controls the Senate, so I would expect the confirmation process to be fairly smooth. So without being able to predict with any precision when we'll get a replacement, um, I'd expect it's a matter of months, not years. Um, but in the meantime, you've got me and I'm delighted to be here. Fantastic. And I think just any thoughts perhaps on your on the way you see the role and the opportunities uh, for the US-Australia relationship yeah, at this that, time? Yeah, great. So this is a, this is a really unique opportunity for us. Um, you might be aware that we had an election just a few weeks ago in the Funny United that. States. Yeah. There was a transition. We have a um, new administration that's really hitting the, the ground running. It's amazing that it's just been two months since um, the Biden administration took over. And this is a, a great opportunity opportunity, um, both for a reset and on issues such as climate change, um, but it's also an opportunity to assure our Australian partners and allies around the world that we have their backs, that we're looking at the challenges, both in, um, in terms of uh, strategic challenges, but also economic challenges with um, clear eyes and with an understanding of the, of the international context. And, and to say that, you know, we're here to revitalize our alliances. I, th I think um, Australia and the U.S. have done quite well, and we can do even better. So I'm looking at my role as the administration, I think, is more broadly looking at its um, position with ambition, but also with a dose of modesty. And, and we're here as much to listen as to, to talk. Look, thanks for that. I think let's go straight to some of the the hard issues that the region and the world faces. Uh, we're, having, we're holding this interview now in late March. Uh, of course, it's only been uh, a matter of days since we saw the uh, the extraordinary uh, coverage and, and I guess the extraordinary reality of the US-China meeting in Anchorage uh, and what appeared to be some pretty confrontational scenes, uh, at least in the diplomatic context uh, across the table. Uh, I'd be very interested in your initial readout on what happened and where is the US-China relationship going? Uh, really, how should how should we be thinking about this in Australia? Right. As, as a um, diplomatic practitioner, but also an avid sort of observer of diplomacy, you know, it was um, riveting TV to watch. Um, and one thing that struck me is you, you mentioned um, realistic, and I think that's really apt that um, Secretary Blinken said, we're going into this clear-eyed and we emerged from Anchorage clear-eyed. Look, there are areas um, that we, we're clearly at odds with China. We're at odds with China on human rights, on the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, on the treatment of people in Hong Kong. We're at odds on freedom of navigation in the South China Sea and on economic coercion of our allies and partners. Um, there are areas equally where, you know, we have no choice but to seek out areas of cooperation in a clear-eyed, realistic way with China. I'd say first and foremost is climate change. You know, China is by far um, 
the world's largest emitter on an annualized basis, you know, um, exceeding the amounts um, put out by the next three largest emitters, including the United States combined. So we have no choice but to seek a way forward with China, um, holding them to realistic targets. Um, and then there are areas in between, you know, where um, we'll seek cooperation when we can, but we'll be realistic about it, knowing that, um, you know, strategic competition with China is likely going to shape the international order for the next two, three decades. One th- So one thing that struck me is just this sort of clear-eyed apprehension of the challenge that we have um, working with the Chinese and um, com- competing with them when necessary. The other thing that struck me too is that we're going about this um, in lockstep consultation with our allies and with our partners. Um, you'll notice that among the things that Secretary Blinken said is that um, – we stand opposed to China's efforts to exercise economic coercion against countries such as Australia. And that was amplified and, you know, made even more explicit. Um, and what Kirk Campbell said to the Sydney Morning Herald just last week, you know, we really can't expect to have substantial improvements in our relationship with China while it's holding hostage um, the economies of, of our partner nations. Yeah, I was going to go to uh, Kurt Campbell's comments because uh, they've certainly resonated in Australia. And I guess uh, seeing that at, at first blush, I guess many of us wondered, what does that actually mean in, in practice? Because I think countries like Australia are looking for um, a maximum of solidarity and support, not only from the United States, but from partners across the region and the world. And I think the sense is this is going to be a very, a very long game. So it's uh, it's interesting to hear you, if you like, echo Kurt Campbell's words there. Um, can I move to the broader context of the region? Because uh, you've situated the new, I guess what I would call, and I think uh, others have called competitive coexistence in the US-China relationship. And it's really important for our listeners to understand that this is not in some, uh, you know, mystical bilateral vacuum. Uh, It's in a region, it's in a global context, and the regional context increasingly looks like an Indo-Pacific context, a very multipolar um, and and vast region. And that, of course, is the region in which we've seen the administration uh, engage so heavily lately, uh, whether it's the uh, Secretary of Defence going to India, whether it's the two plus two meetings in Japan and South Korea, uh, whether it's the support for Australia. Uh, There was some... uh, I guess, analysis and speculation at the start of the Biden administration that maybe the Indo-Pacific was essentially a Trump thing um, and that there'd be some other way of approaching the region under Biden. That seems to have been categorically uh, disproven now by the, um, the approach of the administration. The question, I guess, is the Biden administration is promising a lot in its Indo-Pacific engagement uh, with allies and partners it's going to be uh, a very tough time. It faces enormous challenges at home with uh, the pandemic and the essentially the economic revitalisation challenge. So how will the Biden administration translate the promises about working with allies and partners into a, uh, a sustainable strategy for the Indo-Pacific? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I, I, I appreciate um, that you've noticed that there's continuity here because the Indo-Pacific isn't just a sort of notional strategic con- construct. It's a geographic reality. I mean, uh, your book has some wonderful maps in it. And if you 
flip around some of the maps, one thing you'll notice, of course, is Australia is at the center of the Indo-Pacific. So I'd say um, in that context, one thing that we're determined to do is we're not going to get out in front of our allies. And in fact, we're going to move with them because that really is the, the secret sauce of our power in the Indo-Pacific. It's not a bilateral competition between the United States and China. I'd say it's a competition between two concepts of how the international order should be structured and what values should infuse the international order. You have a grouping of countries, many of them, the vast majority, um, open societies, democracies, um, countries um, dedicated to the rule of law, both domestically and in our international engagements. On the one hand, and then we have an autocracy on the other that um, is looking to flout some of these very rules. So I'd say at, at the highest level of generality, we're looking to um, consult with our partners and allies in a way that amplifies our um, our potential and amplifies our influence um, rather than diminishes it. Thanks, uh, Mike. That's all. That's all well and good. And naturally, I, I like any um, a, any reference to, to uh, my book for a wider a wider yeah, audience. Shameless pandering, but. But but look, there's been a lot of sh- a lot of secret sauce in American mm-hmm. foreign policy lately, and that's you know it's a it's a nice metaphor, uh, easier sort of said said than done. Um, democratic values, you know, you, you mentioned the the democratic and I guess uh, rules based and rule abiding and rule promoting element of um, U.S. policy in the region and globally. Uh, but again, that too is easier said than done. So my question would be. You know, the administration's identified defending democratic values as a primary national security priority for the future. I guess that's that's global and Indo-Pacific and indeed domestic as, as well. Um, but at the same time, there's so much unevenness in the way that democracy is perceived and indeed uh, implemented around the world. And of course, allies and partners often all have our own uh versions of democracy, if you like, and there are some allies and partners, I suspect, or at least some partners in the region, uh, you know, Vietnam, for example, uh, that are clearly not democracies. So how does this all pull together? How will democracy play a role in shaping uh, American engagement in the Indo-Pacific in the future in a way that is, I guess, viable, credible, sustainable? Yeah, that's a terrific question. And one thing I I note in complete agreement is that diplomacy is tough. International politics is tough. Um, There aren't easy answers or else we'd be out of a job, (laughs) both you and I. Um, It's why they pay us the medium bucks. (laughs) But but really, uh, I'd, I'd like to stress a couple of things. First of all, when we talk about democracy, um, you know, if you go back decades, what won the Cold War was not a sort of chest thumping, proselytizing vision of democracy. It was the power of our example at home. Um, and I think we're committed to addressing some of the real wrenching challenges that we face as a democracy at home with transparency, with goodwill, and with earnestness. Um, you know, I'm talking about things like um, addressing racial inequality, talking about things like um, voter rights. Um, so I think to the degree to which we're committed to getting our democratic house in order, um, I think that'll have a, a powerful demonstration effect. We, we say the United States is back. Well, that starts at home. So I'd like to start, you know, in the beginning of my remarks, I say we're approaching this with ambition, but also with a dose of modesty. And I'd say this is where the modesty and ambition come together domestically. The other thing I'd say is the vision is um, it's not necessarily binding and 
proscriptive and it's not exclusionary. Um, there are enormous opportunities to work with like-minded democracies of all stripes. You know, if you look at the composition of the Quad, it's hard to imagine four countries more different in terms of demography, size, um, geographic position, economic stages of development, this sort of thing. But we find um, in our common values an ability to speak to each other candidly and to work together to address big challenges. I mean, I know you're going to address the Quad later, but I'll yeah, just jump right into please. it. You know, if you're Recall, of course, the Quad was initially conceived a couple of decades ago, um, just under, in response to you know the, the devastating tsunami in, in um, 2004, and um, it was almost purpose-built for that. We're revitalizing the quad now, you know, mm. to deal with equally wrenching challenges such as climate change, um, such as, you know, the global pandemic. Um, we're looking at challenges such as countering misinformation um, and sort of more optimistically moving forward, looking at, you know, areas of frontier technology, this sort of cooperation. And these conversations aren't exclusive to the quad, but we find that um, there are opportunities to speak among open societies um, because of the interchange between government and society and because of just, you know, the, the free discourse that you have that are not available when we speak with countries that are less democratic. But of course, we will, we have partners that are, um, that have different political systems and um, we welcome, um, we welcome really constructive um, uh, partnerships with, with them as well. You've mentioned the Quad, so let's go straight to sure. the Quad, uh, and I will come back to the bilateral alliance later because this is a particularly special year for the um, for the relationship between Australia and the United States. But let's go to the Quad because the other big news recently, I mean, as if the Anchorage summit wasn't, uh, I'm sorry, not summit, but the, the Anchorage uh, meeting, as if the Anchorage meeting wasn't enough, the uh, the Quad Summit, the Quad Leaders Meeting, uh, that was really historic uh, a couple of weeks ago now, 12th, 12th of March. Uh, what were your expectations of that meeting? Uh, did it surpass those expectations? And what can we expect now from essentially this, this Quad 2.0? Yeah. So my expectations were exceeded. Um, and they were already quite high. We Last year was a breakthrough year for the Quad. Um, we had engagements at the ministerial level that were um, substantive and ambitious beyond what we had expected. My expectation for this leaders' meeting was simply that the leaders would meet um, because that's something that was unprecedented. And instead, and in um, – exceeding these expectations, we had real commitments to work together, for example, to, um, to you know, coordinate on vaccine rollout in the Indo-Pacific, um, you know, broader commitments on health security, um, on emerging and critical technology, on maritime security, and on um, tackling climate change. I mean, these are really meaty, and I keep using the word ambitious, but I think it's apt, really ambitious um, objectives. And so I think the fact that we have have people at this level, um, at the leaders level, talking about this really sets the stage for future endeavors. I should say that um, the Quad is a really interesting grouping of nations. It's an interesting grouping of leaders, um, but it's important to note also that it's you know it, what it's not. It's not 
an Indo-Pacific NATO. It's not out there to supplant ASEAN. We're still committed regionally to the notion of ASEAN centrality. It's really important to us. Um, but it's just one more area where we can see um, important countries working together in partnership and in complement to ASEAN, not in opposition to ASEAN, to address some real challenges. Yeah, that struck me in the Quad um, leader's statement. And of course, the very fact that there was an agreed statement put out mm-hmm. by the four leaders was something of a breakthrough. And I think and many of the, the Quad sceptics, I think, are scratching their heads at, uh, at that one. But, but the statement uh, was quite comprehensive. It did focus, I think, in many ways on uh, issues of, if you like, the common good of the region, the, the vaccine rollout, uh, climate technology and so forth, while still holding a line clearly about the rules-based order, the need for non-coercion, um, that kind of that kind of pushback as, as well. I guess um, it would be interesting to see then if the Quad also becomes a mechanism for uh, greater coordination or even harmonisation of national positions. I've, I've said not entirely jestingly to a few colleagues that the Quad be- could become a vehicle, for example, for a Biden administration to encourage the Australian government to think differently on climate change. Um, so, I, you know, that's just one example. But I wonder also whether you see potential for the Quad to essentially harmonise positions among the four countries over the long term. Yeah, I'd I'd hate to get in front of our leaders, um, but I certainly see potential in that area as well as many others. What about the Quad Plus? I mean, this this gets bandied around, Mm -hmm. this idea that the Quad is now becoming, as I think it could be, a kind of flexible core for a whole range of other arrangements in the region. We've also got some very strong trilaterals. We've got the bilaterals in the quad in a way has made the region safe for all of those because it seems to have attracted the lion's share of, um, of Chinese fulmination, if you, if you like. But um, there's now a lot of interest from others, uh, from European powers, uh, even I think from South Korea. Uh, what can they do with the quad? Uh, Last year, there were, I think, a number of dialogues involving uh, New Zealand, um, Vietnam and South Korea, if I'm not mistaken, looking at um, COVID response with Quad countries. So we're at the beginning of something, I think. Is the Quad going to take on new members? How is it going to engage with other partners? Yeah, you know, we'll see. Because one thing that I've been struck by the Quad is how – flexible and how nimble it has been, um, surprisingly so, given, you know, that the, these are four very different Absolutely. and large countries. Um, I, I think there is um, open fields for all sorts of different um, combinations of countries to work together. In addition to the Quad, we have um, all sorts of Five Eyes cooperation in areas mm. that go beyond its original core function. Um, we have Five Eyes Plus um, possibilities. We have, um, you know, the G7 coming up and the G7 Plus yeah. notion. You know, Australia is going to be um, joining the G7 countries um, in discussions in, in London. It's important stuff. We have, um, you know, your PM and our um, – and President Biden share a vision for, you know, a summit of democracies. Um, so there are all sorts of interesting, good possibilities. And I'd say one common thread um, that binds them together is a commitment to a rules-based international order. Um, and then another thread is that um, just as the maps that you feature have Australia at the core, Australia is at the core of all of these groupings. And I think that that speaks really well to the um, leadership role that Australia is playing increasingly 
in the Indo-Pacific and in the broader international community. That's, that's an interesting observation because certainly there are some who would say Australia uh, can and should be more activist, but I get the impression that our diplomats are already pr- pr- pretty stretched. And I do think that the, the history books will show uh, a pretty activist Australian role in all of this. Look, just finally on the Quad, Mike, um, there's some work that some of us are doing on the Quad and technology. And I think it was very pleasing uh, to see uh, critical technologies, cyber, critical minerals all featuring in the uh, the Quad statement and indeed the establishment of a, uh, a working group to follow through on that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, none of us can pretend that the four Quad countries are completely aligned on all of the tech issues right now. Um, so the question is, how can the Quad, I guess, assist in encouraging the wider Indo-Pacific region to maintain a commitment to a rules-based international order while developing uh, technology edges in emerging areas, next-gen telecommunications, critical technologies, and also, of course, uh, looking to the security of our critical mineral supply chains. Does the Quad play a serious role in all of that, or how do you see the architecture for those issues? Yeah, um, I think the Quad... um will play a, a very significant role in all of these things. First, if you look at the, as you mentioned, the very ambitious leaders statement um, that, that came out, that gives direction to our each country's respective bureaucracies on how that how we should work together. There are also working groups that that um, that are coming out of it. You know, th- these things are. They're never instantaneous, mm. and the tough work is often in implementing visions that are presented by the leaders. So, you know, I, I'd hate to um, to say that we're going to see something tomorrow or the next day, but you're going to see work tomorrow and the next day on these different areas. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned critical minerals and supply chains. I think that's an area that's of increasing um, importance to all of us. And the importance of supply chains being resilient and secure really is something that came out just in amplified in the last year. We've been thinking about it for a long time, but it came out with urgency this past year. And I think there are going to be important conversations in each country's about what a resilient and secure supply chain means. Is it purely domestically focused or is it internationally focused in a way that um, amplifies um, our security? Um, You can tell from the way I've framed it that I'm much more in favor of the latter than the former, but I think it's good to have either the Quad as an institution or the Quad for what it represents, both in terms of shared values and the countries that are members of the Quad be part of the conversation and how we build these secure supply chains. Thanks for that. The The Quad uh, is something we'll all watch very closely in the years ahead. But as you mentioned, uh, the Quad Summit also reflected a continuing respect for the centrality of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and the, the regional diplomatic uh, architecture. And there has been criticism over the years, I think quite understandable, that uh, the Trump administration tended to uh, really uh, be somewhat alienating or dismissive of some of its partners in Southeast Asia. I don't need you to comment specifically on that, but I would be very interested to understand how does the Biden administration now seek to formulate a coherent agenda for engaging or indeed re-engaging with the the genuinely multilateral institutions Mm -hmm of the Indo-Pacific, uh, which are indeed centred on ASEAN. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, we've talked a lot so far about these more informal, informal minilateral um, groupings of countries, which are increasingly important and they hold great potential. 
But equally, and a, a, an important part of the new the, the Biden administration's foreign policy is a recommitment to working with um, multilateral institutions, both ones that are UN based and also ASEAN. You know, the Pacific Island Forum. Um, we're members of neither of these two bodies, but we have very close um, relationships, either with their kind of wider bodies or their you know a groups of, of, of observer countries um and you're in the east asia summit yeah for example, exactly in our forum. you yeah. know the asean regional forum and you know we have our dialogues with with um with asean as a whole and then also with individual asean countries but you see a recommitment to working with these uh, multilateral institutions which um you know if you focus on their core functions really do important and necessary work around the world and they're what ideally binds the international community together. I recognize in a clear-eyed way, you know, to, to use that term again, that um, a lot of these bodies need um, reform. They need to be held to account so they hew to their original core functions and we need to be mindful and work collaboratively to make sure that the leadership reflects our values as open societies. That said, you, you see us rejoining the, the Paris Accords. You see the United States rejoining the World Health Organization. You see a, a recommitment to working with ASEAN, um, to working with the Pacific Island Forum. And I think you'll see in Asia, just being there matters. And, you know, we have some very tough challenges domestically, but I think I can say without without too much fear of, of being wrong that you'll see a renewed commitment to attending these forums um, respectfully, but, but in an engaged way. And I guess one thing that's on all of our minds also is the role or not that these forums will play in issues like the situation in Myanmar mm -hmm. at, at, at the moment. And we might take a quick break right here and come back in just a tick with more from Roy Medcalf and Charge d'Affaires, Mike Goldman, on the National Security Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Let's go to the uh, Australia-US bilateral relationship. Let's go to the alliance, so from the multilateral to the bilateral. Uh, and, of course, this is the 70th anniversary of, of ANZUS. Now, my own view is that sometimes we can actually overdo a little bit of the sentiment in the alliance because, after all, it is an interest-based alliance as well as a values-based alliance, and it's an alliance that uh, Australia very proactively sought, um, you know, not always something that, America was seeking perhaps as ardently as we were, but this is the alliance we have. It's evolving. Um, it's a different era. It would be really interesting to understand uh, what you see as the administration's vision for the alliance this year. Uh, what are 
the areas where I guess the expectations we have of one another are shifting and will shift, uh, that would be very useful to hear. Mm -hmm. Well, terrific. And just to sort of frame a couple of things that I thought were interesting in what you just said, um, you know, the interests and values. If you think about a, a Venn diagram, they're, they're not separate spheres. They're very much overlapping and reinforcing spheres. So I think um, our interests are very much informed by our values and you know, probably vice versa. So I, I, I agree with you that it's um, an alliance that's built on both and both reinforce each other. Um, I also agree that sometimes it can be a bit backward looking. That's not inappropriate because our history is really um, resonant and it's important and it's only appropriate for us to commemorate it. But I think we'd agree that that's not all we should do, you know, that you know, we, can, we can talk um, in reverent terms about, about the Battle of the Coral Sea, and it is, it's pivotal importance for both of our countries. But then we can also talk about the importance of our bilateral relationship for, say, developing the frontier technologies that are going to compel a post-COVID recovery that are going to propel green oriented economic growth that are going to provide jobs for young people in both of our countries. Um, so I think we, we can do both at the same time, and we can talk about interests and values as mutually reinforcing things. And I think the um, awareness of Australians on some of these issues uh, isn't always what it could be. I mean, for example, I, I think that a large number of Australians wouldn't realise, for example, that the United States is our number one investor, that it's an economic relationship as well as a security relationship. So some of those issues to do with technologies and research, uh, critical minerals and so forth, uh, actually, of course, bridge both technology and economics. Uh, and I guess there's a place for them in the vision um, in, in the vision going forward. I mean, do you, do you see... I mean, to what extent do you see the relationship as being about a security alliance uh, as opposed to something that is much more comprehensive? Yeah, and, and I wouldn't say those two are in opposition because economic security is national security. And I'm very happy you mentioned that the United States is, us by orders of magnitude, um, the largest investor in Australia. And that translates to prosperity and jobs and um, not just jobs, but good jobs that are well above the, the national average um, in areas that are exciting um, and have enormous potential for growth. Uh, Deloitte recently did a report, this is pre-pandemic, but I think it, it, it's still telling that um, if you take together U.S. investment and trade, it accounts for roughly 7% of Australia's annualized GDP. That's a phenomenal figure. And I think it's kind of lost in there's a popular narrative out there that Australia relies on the United States for its security, but relies on China for its prosperity. And I think that's a narrative that is attractive, but kind of simplistic, and it's fundamentally wrong. The United States, um, you know, the 7% of Australia's economy, we actually are, are the most consequential economic partner that, that Australia has. And we view economic security and um, the sort of more traditionally defined national security as parts of the same kind of comprehensive whole. And that's what makes up the alliance going forward, not just as you suggested, you know, talking about the Battle of Darwin as, you know, I, I was there for the 70th, 79th anniversary of the Battle of Darwin, and it was really a moving thing. Um, but we can do both. We can, you know, show reverence for that and at the same time talk about the future. Yeah, I think that's a, that, 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 that's an important balance, and I think uh, that seven percent figure, seven percent of the Australian economy, makes me 
think that it's probably a good thing that uh, you don't seem to be planning economic coercion against us <laughs> any time soon. But I, I guess I shouldn't joke too much about 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 such serious matters. Um, but let's move to some other serious matters, if you don't mind. And I want to talk about COVID uh, mm-hmm. COVID nineteen because, of course, you know we've watched this year of absolute shock globally uh, on on the pandemic. You know, in some ways, Australia's uh, had a relatively successful, I wouldn't say easy, but a relatively successful ride. Uh, and many of us, of course, have, um, have looked with great concern at the situation in the United States. So the question for me is, as um, every country in the region and the world continues to respond to the pandemic to try to get ahead of the pandemic. Um, how will the United States balance uh, its need to demonstrate uh, leadership and activism in the world and the Indo-Pacific while also responding to the challenge of COVID-19 domestically? Yeah. I, I mean, I think the two go together that, as, as I suggested with democracies, the same with public health, the degree to which we get our own house in order will help us with our um, health diplomacy and our efforts to um, to help the rest of the world. You know, I was listening to, I think it was NPR yesterday, and it's, a figure struck me as remarkably coincident. That's the United States accounts for 28% of global um, COVID. I believe it was, I can't remember if it was cases or deaths, but it was kind of stark. And we've delivered to our own population 28% of the world's vaccine doses. So that's, so I think it's, it's actually quite appropriate, our focus domestically. We are, um, though, equally and at the same time focused on um, helping the rest of the world. Um, the Biden administration recently committed $2 billion to the COVAX facility with a pledge to donate another $2 billion soon after. Additionally, we're committed to working with partners such as Australia to um, help with vaccine distribution in places such as the Pacific Islands. Um, we recently reached an agreement with Mexico and Canada to provide surplus AstraZeneca doses, um, jabs to them. So I, I think this is something that as we increasingly um, address the COVID pandemic crisis, health crisis in the United States, we'll be better positioned and have a better standing to help internationally. And on that score, I just say that um, whereas in mid-January, the, the figures were quite frankly frightening in mm. the United States, mm. the trends have been much better over the last um Two months. I mean, we, I read in the paper today the daily case number, and of course you have to um, average these out. But the daily case number is um, today was I think thirty five thousand, which is astounding in an Australian context. But when you compare it with upwards of two hundred fifty three hundred thousand daily cases, you know, just in the early days of, of of this year, it's really remarkable progress, and we're making great progress in excess of already ambitious targets in vaccinating our population. I think we're up to close to 2 million um, jabs a day, which is really astounding. And, you know, looking forward, notwithstanding the the challenges that are posed by, you know, all these new variants of the, of COVID and the very likelihood, very real likelihood as always of, uh, you know, another fourth wave, I think we're doing comparatively well now and that will push put us in a very good position to work with our international partners to address what really is a shared um, international health concern. So I'm going to stick with a few of the the hard issues and particularly some of the issues in the region now because I think 
firstly, you know, you, you, you've made a case that the United States can get its house in order domestically and project uh, leadership and influence and power and reassurance in, into the world. Uh, but looking in our region, there are a number of flashpoints uh, popularly imagined, but I think with some justification, places where there is that potential for conflict, for crisis that could have a profound effect on uh, not just the uh, the people concerned and the societies concerned, but the the role of the United States and the region in the future. Uh, you know, we look at the situation in the South China Sea or the East China Sea or the China-India um, border, you know, all of these now, I think, join the list with um, the Korean Peninsula and Taiwan as um, potential flashpoints. Uh, but the big one in certainly uh, media interest at the moment, and I think uh, in, frankly, some of the disturbing signals coming out of China, the big one is Taiwan uh, in many ways. Uh, so it would be useful if you can share to the extent you can uh, in, a, in this public conversation what you see as the current assessment of the Biden administration in terms of plausible security contingencies for the Indo-Pacific and particularly with respect to uh, tensions over Taiwan. Yeah. Um, so just to back up a, a, a bit, both personally and in terms of our government's engagement, um, personally, I've lived in Taiwan three times, twice before joining the diplomatic service, and then my first posting overseas was in Taiwan. So I have a great respect and an affinity for the people of Taiwan, how they've structured their society, how they've how they've created out of incredible poverty, a vibrant, um, forward-leaning, technology-driven economy. Um, and I think the, um, you know, in coupled with, uh, you know, an open society, they together with Australia, New Zealand have really shown that you don't have to be an autocracy to deal with a public health emergency. They've been exemplary in how they've handled COVID. So that's my, where I come from personally. Um, in terms of our government's engagement with uh, Taiwan, um, it's we we are bound by a moral obligation and also matter of legislation to help Taiwan with its legitimate self-defense needs. Um, the Taiwan Relations Act is something that has enjoyed overwhelming bipartisan support in in the United States. Um, you find people who can't agree on anything who agree on the ne necessity to um, to help Taiwan secure its um, really remarkable society. In that light, I'd say that you know there's a lot of focus on um, overt, crude military intervention, and I just like to say that we're focused on that. Of course, um, our Indo-Pacific Command—that's one of, as you mentioned, several flashpoints. But it's really you know when we game things out at a Korean war, a Korean Peninsula, a Taiwan Strait crisis, and a South China Sea one—they're the ones that we think about most um, intensively. But then we're also concerned with all sorts of other um, aspects of coercion that don't quite reach the level of, of a military invasion, you know, and you can think of all sorts of things ranging from a blockade to cyber incursions to, you know, lobbing missiles over the island. And we're thinking about all sorts of those other things. We're also working to enlarge Taiwan's ability to interact with the international community in a way that reflects Taiwan's potential contributions. You know, it, it was appalling that Taiwan essentially was excluded from the WHO's deliberations over COVID. Taiwan handled COVID better than any other country with the exception maybe of Australia and New Zealand, um, showing that, you know, you don't have to out China China to deal with a public health emergency. 
and yet they weren't given a voice. So, you know, in addition to all the sort of hard power things that you were suggesting in, in your question, we're also committed to supporting Taiwan's ability to have his, its legitimate voice heard in international fora. So look, I'm, I'm glad, um, I'm just going to stick on Taiwan for a moment. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm glad you've um, you noted your own, I think, uh, very deep experience there. Uh, I guess the question I'll put is, uh, what do you see as the, um, you know, the degree of focus that the Taiwan issue will, will have in future conversations between the US and allies mm-hmm. in the region, including Australia? Uh, some of the commentary we see on this is that, Either you know the either there are expectations that are placed on Australia in plausible future Taiwan contingencies, or alternately that we don't talk about it enough. I'm just wondering if you can comment on any of that. Yeah, I mean, I think we're committed as allies to working together, not only in, in making our militaries interoperable and um, you know functioning well together, but also in strategic planning. And when you look at strategic planning, it covers the range of contingencies that you've mentioned, of which Taiwan is obviously an important component. Thanks for that. Let's stick with um, one or two of the other uh, endless list of tricky issues sure. in the Indo-Pacific, because I think, and I, and I think. Certainly, I suspect there'll be more conversations on Taiwan in the year, in, in the years to come. That that window of perhaps six years that Admiral Davidson's talked about as being a particular concern. But let's go to some more of the um, the constant, almost day to day pressures in the region. One of those is on human rights. Um, I think human rights was already mentioned in your um, your opening uh, remarks about the the Anchorage meeting and the issues where the administration has been very upfront now with its concerns. Um, Towards uh, towards China, uh, how do you see the administration promoting human rights and the protection of human rights within this region, within the, within the Indo Pacific? Um, and again, looking at the growing global public awareness of issues like mass detentions, human rights abuses uh, against the Uyghur people, repression in Hong Kong, and so forth. How do you see this agenda unfolding for the United States? And, and, and really, how do you uh, incorporate that with a, an agenda that, um, that is also about what you can realistically achieve? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you have to approach it with a dose of realism that, um, you know, China um, predicates – or I shouldn't say China uh, – the, you know, the, the regime in China, the, the, com- the, the Communist Party um, predicates its um, – authority on a different model of state society relations than Australia and the United States have as democracies. It's, it's very much, um, you know, it's hard to describe the Communist Party as a, as a Marxist party. It's much more of a Leninist party in the sense that it's a, a vanguard control-based political party um, that's proven remarkably resilient in its ability to maintain its dominant position in, in um, China's polity. So it's we are um, realistic in the changes that we can affect within China. At the same time, you know, we we have to speak the truth as democracies, as responsible international citizens. And when we see things in China that, um, you know, Secretary Blinken, in his um, confirmation hearings, he quite appropriately agreed that it constitutes genocide. When we see something like that in um, Xinjiang, you know, we, we have to be upfront about it. One thing that I think we also, you asked how we're going to incorporate this into the foreign policy, we're not going to have 
trade-offs. We're not going to say to China, "We'll go easy on human rights if you agree、mm. to, you know, stick to the terms of our Phase One trade negotiations."、Um, we're just not going to do that.、Um, we're going to continue to be, have fidelity to our values、yeah. while we pursue other interests in other areas. Oh, is it fair to say that trade-offs like that were were something we might have expected under a different administration?、Um, <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll refrain from. Yeah,、comment. no, I'll leave. Yeah. You, yeah, there, there is diplomatic discretion、uh-huh. there, and I, I respect that. But、um, I think some of us can draw our own conclusions.、Uh, look, I'm going to wrap up with one last question, if I may, and that is、uh, really a bit of an omnibus question about the、uh, again the U.S.-China relationship and the way that it really does touch on so much of the dynamics of the Indo-Pacific and Australia's interests.、Uh, we've seen this.、Um, This list of challenges that's been aired publicly、uh, in the、uh, the Anchorage meeting. We know also that there were,、uh, or there appear to have been, some pretty constructive talks after the public、mm-hmm. theatrics.、Um, and you know, I think the theatrics, particularly in the the sort of the sixteen or eighteen minute opening statement um, by um,、uh, our Chinese colleague there, that there were constructive talks on some of these issues, like climate, for example.、Uh, How do you see、uh, the United States maintaining that 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 balance of competitive coexistence with China, cooperating on some issues,、uh, potentially clashing on others, and how do you see this as affecting the interests of U.S. allies like Australia, countries that have taken their own position to protect their interests from China, but nonetheless do not want to see anything like wholesale economic decoupling?、Mm-hmm. Want A relationship that is constructive, mutually respectful with China, as well as our diverse allies and partners. How would you wrap all of that up in your vision for the next few years? Okay, it really is the challenge for the next decades how we manage this, and I'd say we manage it clear-eyed, with resolve, with determination, and in consultation always with our allies and partners.、Um, we have enormous respect for what Australia has done over the past year. You know, in calling for a, a COVID investigation, in、um, standing up to economic coercion, and I should say, in the course of that, proving that your economy is much more resilient in terms of of your your markets than you might you may have yeah, anticipated going into. Interesting to see it. how that plays out, but it is playing out. Yeah. yeah、um, and so I would say those things. You know, looking at realistically, looking at it constructively, and looking at it、um, in. Always in concert with our allies.、Um, since we're wrapping up,、yeah. l- let me just add、um, a note of solidarity and and support. Our thoughts go out to all of your listeners and all of their families and friends who are, you know, in Sydney and New South Wales and Southern Queensland who are affected by this devastating flooding. We've been watching it on the TV. We're soaked here in Canberra, but thankfully there hasn't been flooding. But our our thoughts really go out to all of these people and what they're going through. It's been a tough year. Thanks for that, Mike. And I think that I mean certainly. However, we you know we 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 end up attributing the I guess the the science and the origins of the the climate challenges Australia is going through the、uh, the floods now the the devastating bushfires last year.、Uh, you know I think we know there's been strong solidarity from our American friends on dealing with these consequences,、uh, and of course you know. Likewise, with the bushfires last year. So, thank you for that,、uh, and noting, of course, that、um, uh, our listeners are all around Australia, and indeed、um, across the Indo-Pacific and, and the world. So, look, thank you for your time.、Uh, it's been, I think, a really,、uh, a really comprehensive and useful conversation. Thanks for joining us on the National Security Podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. 
And a big thanks to the United States Chargé d'Affaires to Australia, Mike Goldman, for coming on to the National Security Podcast. You too can join the discussion by hitting us up at Twitter using at Apps Policy Forum, or you can speak to me directly using at NatSecPod, or you can even go old school and drop us an email using podcasts at policyforum.net. Don't forget to drop us a rating on whatever platform you pod with. We take all feedback seriously. If you'd like to suggest an issue we can discuss or how we can improve the show, we're all ears. So thanks very much for listening in, and we will chat to you soon on the next episode of the National Security Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.